This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I wasn't thinking about an audience. I wasn't thinking how it was going to be received. It was a pure outpouring of just whatever came to me. And so when it started getting a wider audience, I was initially taken aback when people were like, why isn't he addressing his heritage? Or why is he whitewashing these characters? Is he dodging the issues or something? But it definitely wasn't the case, at least not consciously. I was rebelliously and ambitiously giving myself the task of addressing those criticisms but also maybe not exactly giving those critics or readers maybe the book that they were looking for. I wanted to do something that still felt true to my own style and personality and the work that had gone before. And so I wanted to see if I could fuse those two ambitions. And I think that was the starting point for Shortcoming. My name is Adrian Tomina, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Adrian Tumine, an American cartoonist who I've admired for years. Adrian is also the creator and writer of the 2007 graphic novel Shortcomings, which was recently turned into a film of the same name and was the directorial debut by Randall Park. Shortcomings premiered at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. This is a book and film you need to see, so be sure to see the links to the book and the film trailer in the show notes. It's also worth noting that we booked this conversation through Adrian's book publisher, Drawn in Quarterly, not his film studio, of respect for the ongoing writers and actors strike. Joining me for this conversation with Adrian was Ryan Joe, longtime friend of the pod and my Quarantine Comics co-host who you've heard of before. When we first got the request from Adrian's publisher, Sharon was like, who's this Adrian guy? And I was like, OMG. Adrian Tomine is such a big deal. And I immediately texted Ryan like a fanboy who jumped at the chance to talk to an independent comics creator that we are both big, big fans of. Adrian Tomine is known not just for his comics, but even his infamous New Yorker covers, which I guarantee you have seen before. His artwork and stories have a wry, thoughtful candor about them. From comics like Optic Nerve, Sleepwalk, Killing and Dying, as well as his graphic memoirs like Scenes from an Impending Marriage and The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist, which we actually talked about on an episode of Quarantine Comic. Adrian's work will make you think, wonder, and sometimes smile, smirk, wonder, and even get angry. It's a beautiful thing when something as simple as words and pictures can have such a lasting effect on you. This one was really a treat to have a conversation with one of the many creators who just really inspired me. So be sure to check out Shortcomings, the comics, and the film, as well as all of Adrian's works. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Adrian. Adrian, welcome to the pod. It's so great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, so big fan. Thank you. <laughs> I just have, I have to get that out of the way. I think Ryan probably is a bigger fan, <laughs> but I will fight him on that. Adrian, a lot of people kind of know your story, but I guess what they don't know is where are you from? I am from Sacramento, California. Huh. Was it the 209, 209 area code? I'm from Modesto. 916. Oh, damn. All right. Yeah. Arch rivals. Arch rivals. Those two. Yeah. But do you ever get the follow-up question of where are you really from? <laughs> yes. Yes. I've not lately, but throughout my life, I have been for sure. And I always assume what the person is wanting to hear is that my family is originally from Japan. Okay. Yeah. It, what's funny is when I first started reading you years ago, I didn't see it. Like, I just didn't know. And then I think mm -hmm. Ryan and I became friends and we started reading it. And I think I was mispronouncing your name all along. Mm -hmm. And Ryan had to correct me. He's like, you know, he's Japanese American. Yeah. I was like, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. so I don't know if that's a compliment or a uh, ignorance. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, I mean, even it, it almost has nothing to do with, with one's racial background or, or familiarity with 
Japanese names because it's such an obscure name that even Japanese people don't always recognize it. Yeah. Was there a large Japanese American community in, in Sacramento? I don't know if it was large, but there, there was one. And my, my family was affiliated with the, the Buddhist temple there. And so we would be involved in kind of more of the social aspects of it. Kind of these like summer festivals and, and things like that. Really about the food <laughs> more, more than anything else from my point of view when I was, when I was a little kid. But yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, in terms of percentages or number-wise how, how large it was. But I mean, I, I ended up moving away from Sacramento when I was pretty young and moving back when I was a teenager. And in the interim, I was living in some places where there, I could definitively answer that question as no, there was not a large <laughs> Japanese-American population. Is that like other parts of like Northern California or like? Yeah, it was uh, Corvallis, Oregon and okay. Fresno, California. Okay. So I have to ask something I did read and I didn't really realize in, until kind of was doing proper like guest research for this episode. But I read that both of your parents, in spite of being third generation Americans, spent part of their childhoods incarcerated in internment camps. Yeah. I mean, their, their infancy, they were born there. Yeah. How did that play out in your youth? Was it something your parents talked about? Or when did they tell you that? Or when did you realize that was a thing? You know, I think to their credit, it was something that was not hidden and not a source of shame or anything. It was very matter of fact. So it was something that I was aware of from infancy, really. And there were artifacts around the house. And yeah, it was just something that I was always aware of. There was never a moment where they said, hey, we have to tell you something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just sort of implicit and kind of just part of our family's story. What, what was an artifact, an example of an artifact around the house for that? My dad had one of the original notices that the government had put on the walls. His was from around the San Francisco area about basically rounding, rounding up the Japanese American citizens. So he had that. Wow. Yeah. I don't think there was any, any great, great mystery about it. And yeah. my mom in particular has been very active in the kind of historical documentation and preservation of sites. And she's worked on documentary films and is, especially from her, there was a lot of a lot of real concrete information available to me as well. Did your parents have expectations for what they wanted you to be when you grew up? Not that I know of. I, I think I had maybe a slightly different experience than some of the Asian Americans my age that I've met over the years in that my parents were kind of hippies. They met at Berkeley huh. when they were college students and they were kind of into the the 60s scene. <laughs> a lot of, lot of Bible studies. Got it. <laughs> right. Buddhist studies. Sorry. Sorry. Right. You know, I don't know if these things always go hand in hand, but in our case, there was family always had a, an appreciation for, for art and for artists. I think from both my parents, there was a sense that creative person was someone to be admired, which sounds like kind of common sense in a lot of ways, but I could probably put you in touch with many other uh, people who, whose parents did not necessarily share that uh, sentiment. Did they actively try to help facilitate your journey in the visual arts or did they just kind of like leave it up to you to figure it out for yourself? Both, both really. I mean, I think one of the, the crucial ingredients in, in my becoming an artist was just being left alone with a lot of time and the supplies that I needed at hand. But they, they signed me up for classes and introduced me to artists. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things was they allowed me to spend money on comic books, which was, <laughs> you know, it really was the foundation for everything that I ended up doing later in life. So sometimes there really is some long-term value in giving your kid a few bucks to go to 7-Eleven to buy comic books. What was the first comic you bought? First comic I bought, I have no idea because I have a, I have an older brother, eight years older than me, who was already buying and bringing comics into the house before I could do it on my own. So he really got me started down that path. And then my interest eventually eclipsed his when he kind of became a teenager and, you know, went away to college and became more of a normal person. And I continued my obsession with comics. But, you know, the earliest stuff we had was very limited because we were living in a small town in Oregon in 
in the seventies, you know, so there were, I didn't know of any comic shops and I didn't know of any kind of comics that weren't published by Marvel or DC or Archie yeah. or Harvey really. So it was, you know, it was, it was whatever was on the spinner rack. Did you take your brother's comics and rip them up and he would get mad at you? Like, no, like I no. did with my brother. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was about to say, who, who in the world would do something like that? But sorry. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do it intentionally, but he would take them and then he wouldn't handle them with the care that I thought that those comics deserved. And then I'd find them under his bed, dog-eared and tattered. Oh, no, no. I don't think it was malicious. No, no, no. I was far more obsessive and, and meticulous than my brother about that kind of stuff. He was a, a healthier person who enjoyed comics for the sake of reading them. And I was, I was very much a collector at an early age as well. You wrote that your brother was really the first person to read your work and to convince you to publish your comics. This was way back in high school. Did he continue to read your works, those early works, as you kind of began your journey into publishing? Oh, yeah. I, I, he, he continues to read it to this day, for sure. He's a writer as well. And uh, yeah, we talk about our work with each other quite a bit. When did you mentally like transition from, I like art, I like comics, maybe I should make these? Like, when did... How did that kind of form like as, as a legit place to go? Oh, I don't know if it ever turned into a <laughs> legit place to go, but it was it was instantaneous for me. I mean, there was there was never a phase in my life that I can remember where I was just a passive reader of comics. Mm. I was making my own version of comics before I could actually write. I would sort of scribble in word balloons to, to make it look like lettering. Yeah, a lot of my really early art, even if it wasn't in comics form, involved drawings and words kind of intertwined on the page. Yeah, I think I was just always very, not, not just with comics, like any kind of art that I got excited about throughout my childhood, I wanted to do my own version of whether our, you know, even if I had no aptitude for it at all, but if I got interested in music, I would want to try and play music myself. Or if I move, it's funny that we're talking now about this, but when I got really excited about movies. I was interested in borrowing a Super 8 camera and trying to make short films. And did, you, did you ever make any? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot, actually. And a lot of it was kind of like stop motion animation. And yeah, I think I've always, I don't know, it's sort of a kind of arrogance or something, but there's always been a part of me that kind of wants to try my hand at any kind of artistic thing that I get excited about. Wait, so is there an Adrian Tomine? a stop motion collection that might be published in the future? <laughs> well, I, if, if you happen to know where it was located, I, I don't know whatever happened to those, those films. But, you know, with Super 8 stuff, you'd actually have to send off the film and wait for it to get processed and sent back and watch it on a projector. Yeah, I, it, it's just that it was so complicated and expensive and, and had all these kind of logistical roadblocks that kept me from really pursuing that. You know, I think a lot of stories about young filmmakers who sort of over, overcame those roadblocks and pushed through and, and continued to make their short films. But for me, it was very apparent that it was much cheaper and easier, relied on fewer people to just make comics. So I think that's what really led me down that path. Just were your stop motion stories different from your, the stories that you write about in your comics? Just because the medium is so different. It seems to lend itself more to like fantasy and just oh. surreal weirdness. Oh, well, I was making the films when I was a little kid. So, so I would hope they're different. <laughs> I mean, literally it was mostly like toys and action figures kind of moving around on grass. and <laughs> Well, move, moving on to, you know, your kind of like your more adult life, you know, you, you had mentioned that Love and Rockets was a gateway drug to, yeah. you know, some of those adult comics. Do you remember when you discovered Love and Rockets and what specifically about that comic really hit you? Yeah, I think I was about 11 or 12, which is kind of insane to me because I now have a 13-year-old and I can't imagine her going into the back room of a filthy comic store and finding an adult comic and buying and getting really inspired by it. But that's what happened to me was just that I'd been a lifelong collector and every week I would go to the comic shop and, you know, buy the latest issues of these things that I'd been collecting for, for years. I've talked about this before, but at a certain point, I really became much more of a collector than a fan or a reader. It was more like a OCD ritual than anything mm -hmm. that I was actually <laughs> enjoying because I'd buy the stack of comics and I'd carefully bring them home and sort of flip through them and then quickly 
put them in a plastic bag and file them alphabetically. <laughs> a very joyless waste of money. <laughs> so I think that I existed in that zone for maybe a year and then started to get curious about whether or not I'd outgrown comics or I'd just outgrown these specific comics. And I knew that at the comic shop that I went to, there was sort of this curtained off area in the back <laughs> that wasn't, wasn't really for kids. And so I sort of started peeking my head in there. But yeah, and that's when I discovered Love and Rockets. And, you know, they very, at the time, they very smartly, the publisher of Fanographics, put out kind of a more user-friendly version of Love and Rockets called Mechanics. And it was mm -hmm. reprinted some of the more science fiction type stories of, of Jaime Hernandez's contributions to Love and Rockets and repackaged it in comic size rather than magazine size. And, and they'd hired someone to add color to it, even though it was originally published in black and white. And, you know, for, I was, I was kind of like the target audience for that. Like, I was like, mm, it still kind of looks like the comics I collect and it would still fit in the long boxes that I have, but it's different. And, you know, that was sort of the real gateway because that led me to the original source, which was Love and Rockets. And then everything kind of spider webbed from there. Well, another thing like we discovered on the, the other podcast Ryan and I do is, you know, we wanted to check out Yoshiro Tatsumi. Mm. And so we got a bunch of his stuff. We read it. And lo and behold, there's Adrian writing the foreword and Adrian, Adrian, like publishing an interview with the creator at, at the end of it. When did when did your discovery of manga happen? Like, was that in the, the same back room of the same comic book store? Or did that take like another generation of of creating and collecting? No, no. I mean, I think that's where being Japanese American might come into it where yeah, it's yeah. it's that 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 kind of stuff was not seen as as foreign or as alien to me as it might have been to other people. And I had I just always had somehow there were some kind of Japanese animation things or comics or toys around the house and you know maybe relatives would bring me back books when they went on a trip to japan there was just always some amount of it so it was familiar to me and i discovered tatsumi's work when i was a little bit older i was probably in my my teens by that point and there was sort of a a bootleg english edition that made its way into some stores and I just, I, I bought it on a whim and really kind of, it had a big impact on me. And that just sort of stayed on my bookshelf and just sort of, you know, throughout the years, I'd always think like, I wonder who this guy was. And I wonder if there's more work of his out there. And I had no idea how much work there was in print in Japan. You know, kind of jumping to your own work. My aunt gave me uh, Optic Nerve when I was, or a collected version of Optic Nerve when I was in high school. And that was, you were sort of my gateway into mm -hmm. adult comics, actually. You and Warren Ellis. Mm -hmm. But, I, you know, kind of just flipping through Optic Nerve, a lot seemed to change in your style during that period. And it seems like there's a big shift visually between like some of the comics from 1993, where your line work is really inky and rough. And then in 94, yeah. your line work becomes much cleaner. And I start to see like the style that is recognizable in your, in your current work. And I'm just kind of hmm. wondering what changed over that, over that year? Do you remember? Between 93 and 94? It seems like there was a big shift. Yeah, just aesthetically, like the lines just became a lot cleaner and your style seemed to emerge. That's my outside looking in sort of perspective. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that was about the timeline because I feel like there was some big shifts that happened even, even prior to that. But around that time was when I made the transition from self-publishing to working for my publisher, Drawn and Quarterly, because I, I, I put out about seven issues of comics myself as sort of like we called them mini comics and they were very handmade kind of small distribution. And, and a lot of that stuff was just kind of Xeroxed or, or yeah, cut and pasted right out of my sketchbooks. So it was definitely amateur work. And I, a lot of it was never intended for any kind of public viewing. <laughs> and then when I signed the contract and started working kind of more professionally, quote unquote, for, for Drawn and Quarterly, I think, you know, I think I started taking things a little more seriously, trying to work in the way that a real cartoonist works with big pieces of paper taped to a board and, and all of that. You know, I think it's so long ago, it's all kind of a blur to me, but you know, around that time, I think is when I met two cartoonists who became kind of lifelong friends of mine and, and, and influences and mentors. And that was a guy named Richard Sala and Daniel Klaus, who happened to be my neighbors 
and I ended up randomly renting an apartment that was kind of on the same street in between the two of them, about a block apart from, from each of them. That was, you know, one of those life-changing moments. And I, we, we became fast friends and I was definitely the kid of the group, but they, for some reason, they just treated me like an equal from, from our first meeting. I really learned a lot from both of them, both directly and through osmosis. And, you know, I've, I've often said to people who, who know about this friendship, they'll say like, oh, so did you guys sit down and did they give you lessons? And I, the answer is that not, not really. I mean, there were a few things that I would specifically ask for help on and they could generous with their, their information. But I really suggest if you have the opportunity to just spend some time sitting around with artists that you admire, having coffee, talking about stuff. I, it's, you know, it sounds kind of anachronistic now, but I really learned a lot by going to use bookstores with them. Like we would drive around the Bay Area and go to Oakland, San Francisco, and go to these secondhand, kind of esoteric secondhand shops and spend the day, you know, talking, but just like digging through these shelves of like old comics and old collections of New Yorker cartoonists and all these things that I'd never seen before and that you couldn't just find in a regular comic book store. But I would sort of bluff my way through it, act like I kind of knew what it was, but sort of be putting together clues about what they were drawn to and what, what they were excited to find. And that was kind of a very informal but significant education for me. I mean, it's kind of always been hard for me to describe your work to someone who doesn't know a lot about indie comics. And sometimes I lead in with non-comics people about New Yorker covers, you know, and I like yeah. pull a few up on my phone. It's like, oh, it's that guy. And even my wife, who always has like an unread stack of New Yorkers, like admires your covers, right? They're among my favorites. I got this like postcard set that I found at a thrift store one day and I, I just sent them out to close friends. But whether it's like these static images or the earliest to me that I got to read, it's like this deadpan and dark candor of, people and relationships. So I got to ask, is that your take observation of the world? Is this kind of the place you're always coming from? <laughs> like this, I mean, obviously later on, you, you start to write about deeply personal things, being a father, right? Yeah. Getting married, et cetera. But some of these characters are just have a very kind of wry take on the world. Like mm -hmm. I have to ask, is that just, that's kind of the stories you want to tell? Is that the kind of voice you have? I, I guess so. I mean, because no one else is giving me assignments or anything, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, Stan Lee's not telling you. To, to no, no. I, I, I've never had a collaborator on any of my comics work and I've never had an editor, right. to be honest. It's really kind of a miraculous arrangement I've had with, with John and Quarterly where they, from day one, you know, when I definitely didn't deserve it, they gave me kind of complete freedom to, to do what I wanted. So yeah, I, I guess what you're describing must just be some natural outpouring of, of, of my personality. Do you think it's gotten happier as you've like self-actualized more? I think so. I think so. I think having children has changed me pretty significantly. And I think that, you know, the kind of concerns that I had and was trying to express when I was 16 are very different than what I would be doing now. How many children do you have? I, have? I have two. I've got two girls. Do they read comics? Yeah, but not mine. They read Raina Telgemeier's comics. My seven-year-old daughter. I'm always looking for comics to introduce her to, right? That aren't just, you know, Supergirl and Batgirl and whatnot. Right. And, uh, you know, I read Smile on a List. I got it from the library. It was okay. My daughter started obsessively having me read it to her at yeah. like four and five. Yeah. And then she wanted to read all the sequels. And then my mm -hmm. wife started reading them to her. <laughs> I was like, because then it gets into like drama and crushes and things like that. Right. So yeah. Sisters. And my wife basically said, we need to kind of hold off oh. at least two more years on. Yeah. So they're literally on the shelf, like flipped around. So my daughter can't see the spine. Of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only the only problem in, in our house is that there isn't there isn't more of it. Like they they they. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm race through them very quickly. And when a new one comes out, they devour it. And then they're just waiting for, for more. Jumping to, you know, jumping to, to shortcomings. I, I think that's your, that's your first, and I, I think it's your only long form story that you've published. If I'm, or was there another one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the, my last book, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist might be even longer in terms of, of page count, but it's, it is more of a memoir than a fictional thing. Did you, did you always intend for shortcomings to be, you know, essentially a graphic novel? Well, let me try and remember because, you know, there was a time when things were just thought of more as 
<laughs> comics, you know, right. issues, issues of a comic. Yeah, I think so. I think by that time, some of my friends had, had started working more with the focus of, of a thick book rather than just issues of, of a comic series. Yeah, that's, that's right. By that time, definitely things like David Boring and Jimmy Corrigan, those things had come out. Yeah, I think I, I had sort of gotten the sense that I'd been doing short stories for a long time and that, you know, maybe there was some curiosity of whether or not that's all I could do or if I was ever going to try anything a little more ambitious. And so I think, yeah, I think I probably was conscious of that. You, the other thing that struck, struck me about shortcomings is that you, it didn't seem like you had written a lot of stories that really dove headfirst into issues of race and racial insecurity. Right. Why did that change with shortcomings? Well, again, I think that was another challenge that I, I sort of chose to take on because, you know, like I said, my early work was was not very thought out. I wasn't I wasn't thinking about an audience. I wasn't thinking how it was going to be received. It was very kind of a pure outpouring of just whatever came to me naturally. And so when it started getting sort of a wider audience and, and getting reviewed and I was getting feedback, I was initially taken aback when people were writing things about like, why isn't he addressing his heritage or why is he, mm. he whitewashing mm. these characters? Is he dodging the issues or something? Which, you know, I, to be fair, I understand why people might have had that reaction, but it, it definitely wasn't the case. There was no, at least not, at least not consciously. And so I think I, I was sort of rebelliously and sort of ambitiously giving myself the task of addressing those criticisms, but also maybe not exactly giving those critics or readers maybe the book that I thought they were looking for. I wanted to do something that still felt true to my own style and personality and the, the work that had gone before. And so I wanted to see if I could sort of fuse those two ambitions. And, and I think that was the starting point for, for shortcoming. I mean, upon the reread of it this past weekend, before we had, we had the opportunity to chat, something I, I didn't appreciate as much because the, the last book of yours that was sitting with me was Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist, which mm -hmm. I related to so hard. And then going back and, you know, rereading shortcomings and even like summer blonde kind of two things kind of come out of it one the abrupt stop which i love yeah but it's like you think there's more but no we're gonna cut it here and i wish more people would do that even in film oh yeah uh, to kind of have a hard stop you don't know what's gonna happen it's not necessarily gonna be a happy ending but oh yeah i love that if, thank you yeah I, I wish more people would take that risk but it's ben's an asshole man mm -hmm. <laughs> like can we talk about like Ryan, you and I were texting about this, and you want to tell him like what your wife thinks about Ben? She, yeah, I mean, she read my wife read the book, and she she hated Ben. Mm -hmm. I was sort of like, well, that's that's interesting because I actually recognize a lot of Ben's in bitterness and insecurity and in, in kind of how I was in yeah, my twenties. Yeah. I remember reading that, like, I related to to Ben, mm -hmm. even though I didn't really want to relate to Ben. Yeah, but he really spoke to a lot of my insecurities that I think I've 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 sort of hopefully gotten over now that it's yeah. like almost 15, about 15 years later. Yeah. I, I, did you get any pushback around Ben <laughs> yes. not being particularly likable in the traditional sense? <laughs> yes. I mean, I've, at, at the time when the, the book was first published and getting reviewed, I would spend way too much time kind of playing this game with myself where I'd go on Google and I would type out the character's name. I typed Ben Tanaka. And then I would just think of what's the worst expletive I could think of and so I'd type in like Ben Tanaka prick and then search that and see what would come up or, you know, Ben Tanaka <laughs> dickhead and then see if anything came up. And always there'd be some blog post or some review or something like that. So yes, there was definitely a, a blowback. Yeah, I was going to say the beauty of it, though, is that ugly truth that it reveals. Like, you know, I feel like we all have that in us. And if you don't confront it. Yeah, I mean, especially now that I'm talking about it. Again, because of the movie, I, I am yeah. often reminded of, I don't know if you guys have ever watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, but there's a, a long running gag about how people don't know that the George Costanza character from Seinfeld was really, really based on Larry David. And so people always feel free to say to Larry David, like, ah, that George character was such a schmuck and what an <laughs> idiot. And who, who the hell would do that stuff? And he's always getting to, he's like, he's not a schmuck. Why is he a schmuck? You know? So there's a part of me that often is thinking about those scenes when I'm talking about talking to people who are saying like, Ben Tanaka is an asshole. And yeah, I mean, just to read into that a little bit, I mean, 
Is it because of the Larry George thing and the the Adrian Ben thing? Say that again. Well, you know the the gag, and just for the record, Ryan, because I always try to bring up Seinfeld on other comic book podcasts. Our guest did it this time. <laughs> Larry is offended by that, and to be clear, Larry's always right on that show, and that's what's so brilliant about. Right. But Larry's offended by it because George is him. Right. How much of Ben is Adrian? How much of Adrian is Ben at that at the era of your life? You know, I think I think. To, to bring up another important but maybe unexpected influence is uh, Charles Schultz uh, mm-hmm. uh, often talked a lot about how people always would come up and say, like, you must be the real Charlie Brown. And, and he would say, no, I'm, I'm all the characters. I'm, I've kind of divided my, my psychology amongst all these different characters. And, and, I, and I feel that way about the shortcomings book and in that, that all the characters, even the ones that don't resemble me in any way or seem very different from me, are very much some part of me that, that I was that I was trying to put on paper. So, it, in the same way that there there's autobiographical components in the Ben character, also the case with with Alice or Miko, Leon. You know, yeah. There's a lot of characters in, in shortcomings, kind of calling Ben out on his shit. Yeah. When you went back to the story for the screenplay. Did you feel the need to change certain things about either Ben or any of the other characters, considering you're now exploring this this story, but 15 years later, 15 years wiser? Oh, yeah. It's a very much an updated take on the story. One of the first conversations we had between me and the producers when we were starting this project, well, they, they said to me, do you see this as a period piece? And I was thinking, talking about a period, did you read the book? I mean, a period piece that take place in the present day. And they're like, well, no, it take place in the early 2000s. It's 20 years ago. <laughs> We're old. We're yeah. old. Yeah. And, and then that was when I realized that anything after the year 2000 seems like the present day to me. You know, the more we explored it, they talked about how expensive it would be to have every car and every bit of clothing and every bit of technology be, be period accurate to the early 2000s. And would that really add anything? And, you know, I, I, I very easily made the decision that I wanted to kind of update it to the present day and not waste all that money having, you know, 2001 Honda Civics or whatever in the background. I was actually thinking about that when I was rereading Shortcomings, because how do you get Ben to New York, right? Yeah. His friend text says, hey, you got to come here and see this. But, you know, nowadays she just sent him a, she just sent him a picture. Well, I was going to say you, you, you misspoke. And, and the first thing you said was she texts him, which. Yeah, she does not. She would have texted him. Right. Right. And. Yeah, that was that was tricky because the, the the book, one of the major plot points hinges on someone saying, "There's something here in New York you've got to see." <laughs> like has to get get on an airplane, and you know, there's a lot of dramatic slamming down of landline phones, and I think there's a part where you actually see him like flipping through his address book to find someone's phone number. Yeah, 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 yeah. All these things that I had no idea were even in the book until I had to go back and look at it again to write the screenplay. I got to ask, and, and we heard this through the rumor mill that this was being made into a film and, you know, Randall, your partner, was attached to it. Mm-hmm. But of all your work, why shortcomings? Was this something he loved and he came to you with? Is this you wanted to take something from your head and put it out and it had to be this? No, I wrote a version of this screenplay in 2008 something like that. Right after the book came out, I got a lot of proposals from people wanting to buy the film rights. This was at a time when there was a little more of a trend of that after Ghost World and American Splendor, Sin City, you know, so there was sort of this idea of like, let's just option every graphic novel. So I I had a lot of meetings and it was very clear that there was going to be some kind of insurmountable disagreements. There was a lot of talk about changing it to make it more castable. That was a word that came up a lot. Does that mean, does that mean like white or what does that, yeah. what does that mean? Ben's a white guy? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. How do you turn Ben into a white guy? Like being Asian American, being a minority is fundamentally who, you know, part of his character. Yeah, no, that, that, there, there was no, there was no good answer to it. These were people who probably on the next phone call were calling up the creators of, I don't know, so the X-Men or something, you know, they, they were just going down a list of comics that they could possibly adapt. So I said no to all those people. And since this was a time in my life when I had much fewer responsibilities, you know, time-wise, financially, I just said like, you know, why don't I try and write my 
my ideal version of the, of the adaptation and just see how it comes out. So I spent like six months doing that. And my wife worked as my editor on it. And she gave me a lot of feedback as we kind of crafted it. And then, you know, I got a sort of a similar response. It was like, you know, (laughs) you didn't, you didn't make it castable. (laughs) Didn't you hear us? And so I just sort of said, ah, you know, fuck it. I just put it, filed it away and just thought, you know, it's just impossible. I thought it was just like kind of a foolish dream that I'd had, but time to get back to my regular work. You said your wife kind of worked on some of it. What were the kind of things she did? Because again, with Ben, like, did she soften Ben? Did like, what was the contribution? She was not, not like creative, right? she wasn't writing on it. She, she has just always been, been my, my first reader and my first critic, my first critic. Yeah. You know, I, I think the, the script just sort of, I forgot about it. I forgot that it even existed. And then, you know, I think I started to, at a certain point, get more interested in, in screenwriting. And I was working on a bunch of different kind of hypothetical projects. And I dug up the shortcomings, the original shortcomings screenplay. And, um, you know, I was like, this, unlike most old things that I go back to and just want to destroy, I was like, you know, there's some good stuff in this. And, but again, it was, it was kind of the landscape was still like, if there was an Asian American guy on the Sopranos for two minutes, everybody would be like, Hey, did you see that guy? <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Cause I think people had people in my, in my life had known about what had happened with that screenplay. So anytime there was some sort of like potential actor that they saw, they would tell me about it. And then, you know, I think just in the last five years, even things just started to change at like a very quick pace. And I, I don't know how many, maybe three years ago, I got a phone call from the guys at Roadside Attractions. They're the company that optioned shortcomings finally. And they didn't know that I'd written that screenplay. They were just interested in acquiring the rights and wondering how I would want to adapt it. And I said, I actually, I actually already did write a script. So they read that script and they said, oh yeah, let's, we want to buy this. This is, this is great. And then we kind of just started the process from there. And Randall kind of had a parallel path like he read the book when it came out and thought it would make a good movie but at that time he wasn't even a very well-known actor so he didn't have a lot of clout certainly he wasn't a director and so it's sort of the same thing where it was like it just wasn't the right time so he had that initial idea and he just sort of put it on hold and then you know built his incredible acting career over the years and I think word got out that I was working with roadside attractions that they'd optioned the book and we were on the hunt for a director. And so I think he found out about this and, you know, to his credit, he was very, very established and very sought after as an actor by this point, but he reached out to us and, and kind of very humbly asked if he could be considered, if he could make a pitch for himself as a director on the project. I'll always remember Randall for his role in, in Ikea Heights. Did you guys ever watch that? Yes. That was brilliant. Uh, kind of jumping back a little bit, you had you had mentioned that your wife had given you feedback for the screenplay. And then, of course, way, way, way back in your early days, your brother had had given you some feedback in your, your earliest comics, mm-hmm. continues to give you feedback to this day. Like, I'm just curious, to what extent is, is feedback helpful? When in the process is is that helpful to you? And do you have like a, a, like a close circle of friends that you kind of send your, your work to before, you know, when it's still kind of in, the, in its infancy? Just my wife. And I don't even send it to her. I, I I work in our bedroom. I have a drafting table in the corner of our bedroom. So when she wakes up in the morning, she's confronted with whatever I've been working on. Does she just like look over your shoulder and he's like, and she's like, no, no, not that. But that's okay. <laughs> I've got notes. No, it's, yeah. I mean, she's been my first reader and critic and editor since midway through the material that became shortcomings. Beyond that, I do have, friends that I talk about my work with, but I don't really show it to anyone. I don't really like send out early drafts and say, give me your notes or or anything like that. I mean, I do with screenplays definitely, because that's like kind of collaborative from the starting point, but the comic stuff is, is pretty like a a solitude. That's just sort of the way I've always worked. When you were working on the screenplay, you know, we we talked a little bit about the, the, the challenge, perhaps updating it. Were there any other challenges that were unexpected to you? Because, you know, on the one hand, you know, you do have the story kind of laid out for you, all of the beats mm-hmm. sort of covered. So, you know, how, how difficult 
was it for you? And what were the unexpected challenges? Well, I don't even know if I'd say it was difficult because I enjoyed it so much. It was, it was a lot of work and it was very challenging, but it was the kind of work that I really enjoyed. I think I really went through it line by line and, and really analyzed it and considered it from the perspective of who I am now and, and the, the time that we're living in now. So, I mean, I think, you know, most people describe the movie as being like kind of incredibly faithful to the source material. And, you know, I saw someone wrote that all I did was just open up the comic and just typed it out or something like that, <laughs> you know, which of course, you know, I'd like to educate that person a little bit, but, you know, I, I, I think that there was sort of a, a thought process to every every bit of the book. And I think some of those changes were kind of more subliminal or, or, or subtle and probably wouldn't be noticed by anyone unless they looked at it very carefully. I'm trying to think what we're, I mean, aside from like the technology, I mean, mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. the idea of, of, of cell phones existing and text messaging existing, that was a big part of it. And, you know, finding the balance. I also, like, if you, if you were to make a truly accurate movie about how we use technology now, it would almost be kind of comical and sad to say, you know, it's like, it's like we're, we've sort of let ourselves slip into a dystopian world where like if you made a movie that showed people looking at their screens as much as they really do, it would almost seem like a gag. Like you're trying to make a point about how we're all. Wally's only five years away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. About how we're so addicted to screens or something like that. And I didn't want it to be like some kind of statement in that way. Yeah. So I had to kind of find a balance of like, yeah, there are probably some conversations that in reality would have taken place over text, but that's not as exciting visually as seeing people walking around, talking on phones and, you know, updating things about DVDs that, you know, some viewers probably don't even know what those are. And, you know, I think maybe on a more broad scale, I think I, I made little adjustments to kind of give counterpoints to some of the rants and critiques and things that, that appear in the dialogue. I think the book is a lot more through the eyes of Ben and, and that's it. And I wanted to have the film feel a little bigger and to feel that there is some air coming in and that for every thing that might sort of concern or irritate a viewer that later on you'll hear a different character sort of counter that with a reasonable argument or something like that. And I, I didn't want to be heavy handed about that. But I think if you look through the film, you will see that there's sort of that sprinkled throughout. And again, I don't want to, not that this is really a, the kind of film that you can spoil, but, but, <laughs> but, but in the end, I did want to sort of complete the arcs of some of the characters that kind of just get dismissed in the, in the mm -hmm. graphic novel. Yeah, I think with a, with a graphic novel, you can get away with the risk of the abrupt cut because it's kind of your known style. And that, yeah. that's one of the things I want to ask, like, you're the kind of creator that when a work comes out, you have a pre-installed base, right? And sure, it's marketed well and more people will discover and your distribution grows and grows. But for the most part, like, this wasn't the first book of yours I read, right? Nor will it be the last. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of know what to expect, right? The style, what what we want from a Tumine joint, so to speak. Right, right. But the film, like, it's not just for Asian people. It's not just for Tumine fans. It's like for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask, I mean, the film's coming out right now. Mm -hmm. I've seen a couple of like early notes that are coming out right now, but like, how's reception in it? How do white people feel about it? How do Asian people, <laughs> how do women feel about this, et cetera, yeah. et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting. I've already seen it with kind of a, a, a range of different, in a, in a range of different settings. I saw it at, mm -hmm. at Sundance and I saw it at Tribeca. Congratulations, by the way, on like being selected. That's, that's oh, awesome. thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a great honor and a lot of fun. So a lot of white folks there. How do they feel? At Sundance, yes, that might be true. And it's it's in it's in Park City, Utah, and it, it's <laughs> kind of expensive to get there and expensive to find a place to stay. And so it's a very specific audience. And but I've you know kind of at the other end of the spectrum, I've sat in screenings that were for I don't know if I should really say where they were from, but some some companies have these kind of like affinity groups. So it's like mm -hmm. kind of the, the eight the eight American group from this company yeah, yeah, will yeah. have a specialized screening. And so that was a really different experience too. And yeah, it's really interesting to experience what is what I know to be the exact same film, but with different audiences in different settings, because the reactions really do vary incredibly. Well I have to ask, I mean 
are you going to move into film? Are you going to work on another book? Like, what do you want to do next? Or is, was this kind of a one and done? No, no, no. It's all of the above. I mean, I, I, I'm grateful that I don't feel like I need to necessarily choose one over the other. In fact, the thing that I'm working on right now is kind of the perfect fusion of the two. And it's a, it's a book built mostly on, on the screenplay to, to shortcomings. Mm. Mm. And that will be published by my longtime comics publisher, John Quarterly. Yeah. And we've got a few other projects in the early stages. And yeah, I think, I think it's the kind of thing that I, I would love to continue to try to do both, you know, if not simultaneously, then sort of alternating. You know, I think there are some cartoonists who have their first film experience and it poisons them against it so intensely that they just go back to making comics for the rest of their life. You know, and in some dark moments, I was sort of hoping that that would be my experience because I'd spent so much of my life working in this one way of making comics on my own. And I sort of felt like it'll sort of feel like some vindication if I get totally screwed by Hollywood and I'll feel like, see, I knew, I knew that was no good. And I got to go back to the real art of making comics by, by myself. But to my surprise, I did not have that experience. I had a great experience and I felt very inspired and enlivened and fulfilled by the, the collaborative process and sharing this path with, with all these incredibly talented people. Yeah, I'm, I'm very eager to, to continue down that path as well. Nice. I, I want to know, to kind of bring it full circle, I assume your, your folks, your family, your extended group, they read your work, but mm -hmm. they kind of see it on the big screen. It's more real. You said your daughter's reading Rena Telegemeyer, but when dad makes a film, yeah. if she, how, how does your family, your folks, your wife, your kids, how are they reacting to this brought to life on the screen? Um, oh, I mean, you know, my, my wife has been by my side every mm -hmm. step of the way. So she was there with, she, she was there with me at Sundance and Tribeca and, yeah. you know, she, she probably never needs to see the movie again at this <laughs> point because she's, she's had to sit through so many screenings of it. And my mom just saw it. I haven't had a chance to even talk to her yet, but she went to an advanced screening in San Francisco the other night. And so she just saw it for the first time. And I haven't decided when I'm going to allow my kids to see it. My, <laughs> my oldest kid has kind of free reign with, Netflix and HBO and all that anyway. So, she, you know, she said, I'm going to see it anyway. You know, like, like it's going to, eventually it'll just be free on her computer. So she will see it. If nothing else, she'll see it that way. That's great. Well, we're almost out of time, but I have to ask, like, if you could tell your past self, you know, that, that kid kind of drawing his own comics and saying he could make a, his own film with a Super 8, like, mm -hmm. what would you tell him today? Yeah, to, to definitely stick with it because there were many, many days where I would be sitting there, sitting at my desk drawing and, and, and sort of feeling like it was almost like I was building sandcastles or something like that, you know, just like the sort of pointless exercise to, to keep me from feeling too bored or lonely or something like that. But the fact that so much of my adult life and so much of the great things about it have come as, as direct or indirect results of developing that talent of, of spending that time learning how to make comics, especially as I became a teenager, there starts to be this sort of speculative fantasy of like, well, maybe someday this will all pay off, <laughs> you know? And I, I would love to, to go back and reassure myself that, that in, indeed it did. I mean, just show them the Rob Liefeld Levi's commercial and you'll be right. <laughs> so we've only got a few minutes. Ryan, do you think Adrian is ready for a speed round? Is anyone ever ready for a speed round? Robin? I didn't I didn't know there was one. Oh, it's like interview over. Done. I didn't sign up for this. Adrian, what's one thing about you that no one expects? Oh, there's a lot. Basically, anything that I enjoy doing with my kids, I think would be a shock to many people. <laughs> the movies I've seen, the the amusement parks I've gone to. What else? I'm a very good bread baker. What's your, what's your jam? More of a sourdough? Or sourdough, yeah. Okay, okay. Is that your kind of like Bay Area thing? Yes, thank God you said Bay Area, not pandemic. It was not a trendy pandemic thing. It was me moving from San Francisco to New York and not being able to find the kind of sourdough bread that I had grown up eating and teaching myself how to make it. Well, you know, speaking of movies that you didn't expect to watch, but what's, what's <laughs> a movie 
with uh, with characters that that you can relate to. Oh. Or a book that I can relate to? That you can relate to. Oh, I think that's the mark of any kind of good art. So it's like even it's not necessarily characters that are like me or that look like me or or mm-hmm. have traveled the same path as me. It's you know, how how well did the the writer do his job? But yeah, off the top of my head, I would say curb your enthusiasm. Always the right answer. Yeah. He could have said Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't know if a lot of people know about this, but there was actually like a, a, a long, kind of like a feature length pilot episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. That for some reason, doesn't get bundled with it on the, on the uh-huh, HBO uh-huh. Max page. You have to look it up separately as Larry David, yeah. Curb Your Enthusiasm. And that to me is like one of the most underrated films. And there's a specific arc, a plot arc to that pilot that I, I relate to in such a intense way. I, I like you even more now, now that I know that about <laughs> you. <laughs> so as you do your work, as you walk around the city, as you think about the next book that you're going to create, yeah, what's a band, a song, an album that kind of moves you and kind of gets you into place? You know, music is a very confusing topic for me. To be, to be a, a 49-year-old father of two girls, yeah. you don't have a lot of say about what you're exposed to most of the time. I, I will say that I did attend the most recent Taylor Swift tour and that at, at one point I got a notice from Spotify saying that not it, it said it was me, but it's actually just our, our family's account, but that we were in the like 1%, top 1% of Taylor Swift listeners of like the most listens we were, we were in that top bracket. So, you know, the, the, the space for me to, to discover and, and, and find my own, my own music has, has diminished quite a bit. That's really upsetting because my seven-year-old's into One Direction right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yeah. We've, we've gone through that. That's upsetting. We've gone through that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's also another big change for me is that I used to draw a lot more. So when I was working on comics, there would be long stretches, you know, days in a row where all I had to do was like ink the outlines of characters or something like that. And it's a very mindless task that actually is improved by having fun, dynamic music with singing and everything playing in the background. I mean, I think Kevin Smith called it tracing. So, you know. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, but for writing, which is what I've yeah. mostly been doing in recent years, it's like, that's very disruptive. Okay. And so I've been, you know, either working in silence or listening to instrumental music or, you know. But having said all that, most recently I've really enjoyed a band from Brooklyn called Cut Worms. Yeah, when I have the right mindset and, and, and a space in my, in my work where I don't need silence or, or non, non-singing, I've enjoyed them quite a bit. Do your, do your daughters like Cut Worms? You know, anything that I like, they, they think is okay. Like, we're not, we're, not so, we're not so far apart that like, when I play my music, they, they scream in, in protest. They, if we're driving in the car, they'll definitely start talking a lot more once when my music comes on. So it makes it hard to enjoy. Well, what's, your, what's your favorite mom or, or dad dish? Oh, that's my specialty. We have a very kind of stereotypical division of labor in that regard in our house where my wife is an excellent cook and makes very complicated meals with many dishes and tries new recipes and and things like that. And I am the the utilitarian pinch hitter who comes in and, and makes pizza bagels and quesadillas and mac and cheese and, and all that kind of stuff, especially breakfast. I'm, I'm generally the, the breakfast line cook. And so one of the things that I, I often make in a pinch is different families that I've met have different names for it. My kids have ended up calling it eggy bread, but it's like a piece of sourdough bread that's toasted and you cut out a circle in the middle and drop it into a frying pan with butter and then put an kind of soft cook an egg in that hole. Oh. Yeah. And that is, uh, that's sort of a, a strange dad recipe that has, has become one of my specialties. If they, if they say, dad, I want white bread, would you feel betrayed? No, you, they don't. You know, to their credit, they refer to bread as either a good bread or bad bread. And bad bread is, you know, healthy, like multi-grain browner in color bread <laughs> and good bread is not wonder bread but it's like really good sourdough that's what they consider to be good bread 
So beyond the bad bread, what's your least favorite food? Least favorite food is the many things that I'm allergic to. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. I want stuff that you have veto rights over, like if it shows up on your plate. Well, I don't know if I have a least favorite food. I'm I'm kind of a pig. I kind of eat everything and and love it. I mean, that that's another surprise that people might not know is that that's like one of my main, my wife and I, that's like one of our main hobbies is it? is to go out to restaurants and, and to eat different kinds of food. A lot of cartoonists have a very plain palate. I don't know why that seems to be the case, but many cartoonists that I've known over the years, they really love like a simple kind of meat and potatoes kind of diet. That might be the one, one area where I, I depart. I think Zoe Thorogood's author photo is just her sitting next to a pile of fries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there, there's... There's ever been a cartoonist who doesn't enjoy sitting at a diner and eating, you know, whatever, a tuna melt and fries or something like that. True. The universal experience. And that will bring us all together. So who are the creators out there that, that you would want to talk to on a, on a podcast? Well, the truth is I, I've met most cartoonists that I would want to meet. It's been, it's been a great privilege, but I, I, don't know that I would necessarily need to do need a podcast as an excuse to do that. I did just have a really good long phone call with Dan Klaus about his new graphic novel that's coming up. I think it's coming out in October. It's called Monica. And it's one of those books that was just so kind of overwhelming emotionally and, and challenging mentally that I I didn't want to just send him a text like, hey, it was great. I wanted to get on the phone with him. And so I guess that was sort of like a, a private podcast where I got to sit there and like, you know, for two hours say like, okay, turn to page 77. What's, what was this all, this all about? And That's pretty cool. Yeah. And now that I've kind of dipped my toes into the world of filmmaking, I just have this strong urge to, to have that kind of experience that I've had over the years with cartoonists, with filmmakers, you know, to, to really peek behind the curtain and, and these kind of unvarnished off the record conversations about, about how things were really made. And, and I don't know if I'll ever, if I'll ever get that. It's definitely a different world than, than cartooning. But yeah, I think I would, I would put a lot of filmmakers on that list at this point. I mean, just to double click there, who are, who would be a few of those? Well, Larry David would be one of them <laughs> since we've, we've been talking about him so much. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I got to talk a little bit with Sabine Siama because she did some of the writing on a different film adaptation of my work, a, a French film called Paris 13th District. And so I yeah. had a had a brief exchange with her, but she's someone who whose work I admire and I would love to to talk to more. Ari Aster is someone who I feel like I could ask a million questions of. Oh, did you like Bo is Afraid? I did. I did very much. I thought that was one of the the, the closest I've seen a film come to underground comics wow. in a long time. Just I you know, the the, the list goes on and on. You know, the the Coen brothers and Alexander Payne and, and, and even films from the past that I'm so fascinated by. Like I've, I've always really liked this movie called Killer of Sheep. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you know it, but it was made by this guy named Charles Burnett. You know, there's so much that I would love to know just about the making of it. Cause it was done on such a shoestring budget and it was shot all on location. And, and it's just a, it's just a beautiful film. And so, especially compared to something like that, the, the movie that I just made would, would be considered kind of high budget, but there was still a lot of, you know, I, I just had no idea how much budgetary concerns and constraints would play into the creative process and things were changed because of budgetary concerns or things, you know, locations or all these things that were affected by the topic of money, which never comes into play with creating comics at all. So I, I, I would love to talk to filmmakers who I know sort of pinch pennies and cut corners and, mm -hmm. and found ways to make great films on, on limited budget. That's right. Well, kind of the last question, Adrian, and we've touched on this a little bit, but what does being a modern minority mean for someone like you? That's a very broad question. It pops up in, in so many different and unexpected parts of life. And it's something that might not be omnipresent in your life mm. and it might not always be at the forefront of your mind, but it's never completely absent. That's my experience. You know, I've always said that sometimes for, for my work as a cartoonist, I would have to go on these long 
book tours and I would travel to all these different parts of the country. And I could sort of like break down locations like cities that I went to by how Asian I felt, mm. you know, <laughs> like, like getting out at a gas station on the drive between Atlanta and Athens, Georgia. I felt pretty Asian. Yeah. Yeah. You know, versus being in the middle of Manhattan or something like that. Yeah. I, I, I just think that's, that's, that, that sort of amorphous quality to that, that the sort of feeling of like, depending on where you are and who you're around and yeah. what the mood is or what's going on in the news that it, it, it's always evolving. And I think that's, that's really my experience is that there's no one, one way to sum it up because it really depends on, on the day or the minute. That's great. I mean, I find it very thoughtful, which is kind of like, that's also another way to kind of sum up your work. And it just means a lot that you continue to put it out there and make it into other things like this film. Well, thank like you. The next book. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, thank you so much, Adrian. Yeah, it's great talking to you guys. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hold. Potluck. Potluck. Potluck.